Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by David Loffman, a partner at the law firm of Wigan Dana, where he serves as co-chair of the firm's National Security Practice Group. Prior to his time at Wigan, he served as a federal prosecutor and at the Department of Justice's highest operational and policy levels, including as chief of the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section in the National Security Division at DOJ from 2014 to 2018. David and his firm are currently representing two of the Capitol Police officers who testified before the select committee just a few weeks ago. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Reed. Good to be with you. So today I want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing right now, both in the context that you and your firm are representing two of the police officers who were there on January 6th at the Capitol and why you all decided to do that. And then I want to talk about Trump's relationship with his Department of Justice. But first, I want to talk about how you see all of this playing out. You know, we were talking yesterday about the time between November 3rd and January 6th and the idea of what did President Trump know and when did he know it? And so as you look at this from both a former prosecutor's perspective and someone who has national security expertise, what are some of the things that are standing out to you? Well, let me start with the proposition that national security does not just involve the ability of the United States to project military force overseas or to develop strong alliances with our partners. National security begins at home, and it was on horrific display on January 6th when violent extremists stormed the U.S. Capitol and attacked the chickens have come home to roost in a way we never imagined they would. And I can tell you, having been at the Department of Justice on 9-11 as chief of staff to the deputy attorney general, helping to facilitate the Justice Department's response to 9-11, and as horrific as that was, what happened on January 6th is more centrally perilous to our democracy because it endangered a core democratic process, the peaceful transfer of power that we have never encountered in our history. The Select Committee in the House is just one instrument for unpacking what happened. It has a bipartisan dimension to it. It has two Republican members, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, on it. It will not have quite the resources or potentially the legitimacy that a bipartisan commission would have had, like the 9-11 Commission, but they're going to do the best they can in the time they have. And what is critically important is for the Select Committee and their staff to organize as quickly and cogently 
as possible to devise an investigative plan that includes identification of subpoenas that have to be issued to those witnesses, including former administration officials, who are likely to be recalcitrant who may litigate those subpoenas to make sure there is sufficient time if the courts agree to compel compliance with the subpoenas to develop all the evidence necessary to amass a forceful, complete evidentiary record for the public to have confidence in the legitimacy of their factual findings. While that is going on, the Department of Justice, as you know, is bringing scores of individual criminal prosecutions to hold individuals accountable who stormed the Capitol, attacked officers, defiled the U.S. Capitol that day. But, you know, we are in an all-hands-on-deck moment. We might feel that we survived, you know, the sort of Damocles on January 6th, but we have before us now, as you well know, an effort across the country promoted by the former president and his minions to create mechanisms in states across this country, either to prevent individuals from casting their ballots or to facilitate jettisoning ballots cast by people who they believe will not support Trump candidates. And so, you know, many things are happening at once that I think are going to be central to the ability for us to sustain the American experiment. I want to go back to the idea of national security in the context of domestic terrorism, because I think sometimes having been in the U.S. government many years ago, and certainly at a very junior level compared to you, that sometimes we both as a government and as a people saw domestic terrorism the same sort of way that we saw hurricanes and tornadoes, right? Well, those things happen, but we don't significantly plan for the hazard of it. But if it's Islamic terrorism, we'll dump billions, if not trillions of dollars into it, right, on people thousands of miles away from, from the U.S. But is there a line, do you think, from someone like a Timothy McVeigh in April of 1993, who, you know, destroys the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, kills, I don't know how many people, hundreds, including children to where we saw those people on the steps on January 6th. Is there a direct line or has there always been this amorphous sort of ethno-nationalist movement, but it found purchase within someone like Donald Trump? Oh, I think the bombing of the um, federal building in Oklahoma City was a gigantic data point in exemplifying the existence of this threat. And this is a movement that largely existed you know, beneath the surface, didn't think it was safe to come above ground until the former president legitimized them and encouraged them to come above ground to express and manifest their support for him. When he says in a presidential debate to the Proud Boys to stand by and stand back, that's not a dog whistle, that's a megaphone. This is a president who we know monitors media activities. One of the notes that the Justice Department released from a senior Department of Justice official to the House Oversight Committee a few days ago includes a note of a comment made by Trump that he's aware of what's happening on the internet. People are telling him about things happening on the internet. And we know that there was extensive internet chatter on right-wing extremist sites and social media in the lead up to January 6th, manifesting an intent to organize and engage in physical violence to penetrate the Capitol. One of the exhibits in the hearing by the House Select Committee on July 27th in connection with our client Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn's testimony was a screenshot of a right-wing social media communication that someone sent to him as he was manning the east front of the Capitol, communicating that the adherents to this message were organizing and arming, marshalling forces for an attack 
on the Capitol that had a significant effect on his degree of threat awareness and influenced him to raise his level of responsiveness. And, you know, that's just a snippet of what is out there. To what extent the FBI was monitoring open source, publicly available chatter on right-wing extremist websites in the run-up to January 6th is among the critical things that the House Select Committee will need to investigate. There's been a reticence by the FBI to, you know, camp out on those kinds of websites as they have on jihadist websites for years and years to protect us from foreign terrorist threats in the United States. I'm fully in support of that. You know, as I said, I helped oversee the department's responses to 9-11. I prosecuted terrorism cases as an assistant U.S. attorney. But we now know that the threat to our democracy is far greater from right-wing domestic extremists than it ever was from foreign terrorists. I'll tell you a personal anecdote. We were at a wedding in Pennsylvania over the weekend near Pittsburgh, and on our way back, we decided to divert to the United Flight 93 Memorial near Shanksville. Just as an aside, David, I worked at the White House in 2002 as an advance man for President Bush, and that was my site on the one-year anniversary. So yeah, I'm very familiar with that spot. So I'm sure you visited it, and I encourage all the listeners to this podcast to go and visit. And I'm gazing out on that field where the impact occurred, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, the individuals on that plane engaged in the most heroic, selfless, patriotic act that is imaginable. Actually, it's unimaginable, but they chose to do to protect our democracy. Some of them knew somehow that there had been an, an attack involving planes earlier that day, uncertain whether they had any reason to believe the plane was headed for the United States Capitol. Further investigation led to a conclusion that the plane likely was headed for the Capitol. And their sacrifice to help protect our democracy is extraordinary. And I began thinking about where we are now and the threats to our democracy from within. You know, how could we dishonor the sacrifice of those brave Americans on that plane by failing to do everything possible to illuminate and prevent further attacks by domestic extremists to undermine our democracy? No, and you know, it's interesting because you have Shanksville, and when I was there, there were still pieces of the airplane everywhere in the field. And the night before the anniversary, we put out three hay bales. The next morning, we came back and there was a shrine. There were letters to Uncle Joey and knickknacks and, and little personal artifacts. And as the president and Mrs. Bush stood there and the military aide, a decorated green beret, you know, stood there holding the wreath and the families file by and there's tears. We're all crying, except for the families. The families they're there. They know the price that they paid and they know the sacrifice that their family members and their loved ones made on behalf of the United States. And then you go maybe, what, 100 miles, 150 miles east to Gettysburg, where something, you know, that we talk about a lot, the first Minnesota held for five minutes against a rebel charge. And if they had not held, you know, for that five minutes at a staggering like 92 percent lost their unit, still the worst unit loss in the history of the U.S. Army. Robert E. Lee marches on the Capitol himself. And so, uh, you know, we should always thank the Commonwealth and the people that found themselves there. So, David, let me ask you this. So you mentioned a couple of things I want to bring up. One is if there's one thing we've seen in intelligence, and this applies, I think, both to 9-11 and to what we saw on January 6th, is that there always seems to be a silo effect amongst American national security organs, or even in the case of 1-6, 
local law enforcement organs, which is someone sends an email, someone makes a phone call, someone sends a text or whatever, but no one ever puts the pieces together to say, hey, you know what, maybe we should do this. Now, the flip side of that, of course, too, is that there had come down from Pentagon leadership that the National Guard was not to respond to this litany of things. So that seemed to create the nexus by which these thousands of people could march down Pennsylvania Avenue and get to where they were. But in your mind, did we have a systems failure as well as a failure of democracy and, you know, these people coming and doing this stuff? Yeah, setting aside what the threat intrinsically was, the failure to learn of it and to counter it in a timely way was catastrophic. Now, I expect the Select Committee, when it produces its findings, is going to reflect a mosaic of failures, the learning of wrong lessons from the excessive use of force against peaceful demonstrators at Lafayette Square on June 20 that apparently motivated the D.C. mayor to ask only for a light footprint of National Guardsmen to monitor traffic intersections rather than create a perimeter defense around the Capitol, which could have made all the difference in preventing the breach of the Capitol that day. Whatever discussions, we still don't have transparency into within the Department of Defense and between the Department of Defense in the White House about whether to mobilize the National Guard in a timely way that could have made a difference that day. Information sharing with respect to threat information probably needs to be improved considerably between the Bureau and local law enforcement. We will learn more, hopefully, from the Select Committee's investigation about what information the FBI had. You know, what did the FBI know and when did it know it? That type of examination, uh, what was shared and with whom and when. Was it shared in time to make a difference? Was it shared with appropriate urgency? You know, just forwarding an email to a law enforcement agency is probably not the best way to say, holy shit, there's a band of armed insurrectionists bound for the United States Capitol. Mobilize all units immediately or whatever needed to be done. You know, we'll learn more about that. I can tell you after 9-11, there was a considerable effort within the Senate to break the FBI apart and to create a separate intelligence agency like an MI5 for the United States? Like an MI5 focused exclusively on intelligence. We pushed back aggressively against that, successfully against it. We did not want to create two separate organizations that have to be intrinsically fused. But the FBI had to reinvent itself. It had to alter its essential foundational ethos from an organization that was primarily reactive, investigating crimes that already have been occurred, to precluding the commission of crimes, in this case, acts of terrorism against the United States that could result in mass casualties of Americans. So it has transformed itself with respect to intelligence gathering using lawful authorities with respect to foreign terrorism. Now it needs to lean as far forward under the statutory authorities it has and re-examine its own policies to be consistent to the edge of the envelope with those legal authorities to gather in real time information pertaining to threats to the United States from domestic extremists. Anything less than that is a disservice to our democracy. We've talked about the law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies of the United States and the military. But let me ask you this, as we're learning more about this, and I don't know the exact number, so I don't want to inflate it, but it seems that among the people who stormed up the steps that day, there were a fair number of former law enforcement, current law enforcement, former military, are those signs of a broader and deeper issue among security services within the United States? Yes, I think so. And among the priorities for addressing, I think, is the extent to which there are other elements within, most importantly, current law enforcement or 
the current ranks of the armed forces who participated in that attack and who subscribe to these extremist views. We have to be careful to balance First Amendment freedoms with behavior that crosses the line into criminal activity or threats to commit acts of violence. That's a difficult balance sometimes to strike, but it is important to have situational awareness in real time of what these groups are saying and planning to evaluate whether they are migrating into actual threats versus mere ideation pertaining to the expression of opinion. So the Justice Department and the FBI are making aggressive moves against the people they can identify at the Capitol that day. When you see the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates's trying to go to the federal jailhouse in D.C. and are now calling these people political prisoners. They're being held in inhumane conditions. To me, it's performance art, but there's a part of me that's afraid that they really believe it, too, and that they're pushing that message that these people are somehow martyrs to America. Yeah, it's just disgusting. It's disgusting. It's despicable. Do you think they'd be demonstrating in front of a federal jail if you know, Antifa or Black Lives Matter had stormed the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, it's just ridiculous. How did creatures like this become members of a body as august as the United States Congress? We have to hope that these are outliers. You know, at the end of the day, I think what's most important is for the Department of Justice to create a robust, transparent public record of what these people are pleading guilty to. And every one of these plea agreements, for the most part, there's going to be a statement of facts that is part of that plea agreement that the American people will read that will set forth the truth of what happened that day with respect to that person. And that is going to amount to a pretty considerable public record of just what happened that day with respect to the violence inflicted on the Capitol and on the law enforcement officers who were defending the Capitol that day. And by the way, one other thing about these officers, and you saw four of them, but they're just reflective of a larger group of officers. There is an ongoing, deep and open wound among the law enforcement community present to defend the Capitol on January 6th. Many of them are suffering from terrible physical injuries, multiple surgeries, some of which Sergeant Gonell testified to, but they're also suffering from enormous psychological trauma, the likes of which we just can't comprehend. And it's just essential that the Capitol Police, the D.C. Metropolitan Police, other law enforcement agencies that were present that day at a leadership level are making every resource available to these officers that they're leaning forward in granting administrative leave to these officers to tend to their injuries and creating space for them to heal and recover. That's a good segue into the officers you're representing, your firm is representing pro bono, as I understand it. What made you all decide that, you know, you want to take this on? Because for a lot of people, it would be easier to say, we're just going to stay out of this in our hyper-polarized world, and certainly you've spent enough time in Washington, D.C. to understand that everybody's going to choose sides, everybody's going to move to their corner. What made you all decide that these were the people to represent and this was the time to do it? Well, when the opportunity presented itself for me to join a legal team for these officers and specifically to represent them at the hearing, I didn't hesitate a nanosecond to raise my hand and offer to help because I could not think of any more valuable service as a lawyer I could perform than to help these officers tell their story, tell their truth to this select committee and to educate the American people about what they went through on January 6th. My firm, Wigan and Dana, also didn't hesitate at all to fully support undertaking not just representation of one client, but two clients on a pro bono basis. It's a foundational ethos of our firm to provide that kind of public service 
as lawyers. It should be a foundational ethos for lawyers around the country. And we've received lots of messages of support from colleagues around the country. There are some things that just rise above the billable hour read, and I can't think of anything that would more qualify for that than representing these courageous officers at that hearing. So we saw that recently two more police officers took their own lives. I believe that brings the number to four. And just as you said, for the four that sat before Congress and now those four that have taken their own lives, they are exponents of a broader force, whether or not it's Capitol Police, whether or not it's Metropolitan D.C. Police. I mean, it was hand-to-hand combat. This was life and death stuff. We've seen the video now. I'm sure we'll see more video. We saw Officer Goodman very well might have saved the lives of who knows how many members of Congress or the vice president. How are they feeling? If you could use your clients as the barometer for how they're feeling, where are they right now? They're hurting, and they're just the tip of the iceberg. As you say, they're just four officers. You could see each of them and hear them tell their stories. They all carry wounds as we sit here talking today from January 6th. You heard the horrific array of injuries that Officer Fanon sustained, including a heart attack. Sergeant Gunnell talked about bone fusion surgery he had to undergo in his foot and how he has to undergo shoulder surgery sometime soon. You know, Officer Dunn testified to counseling that he's receiving and how he continues to try to metabolize the grotesque racial slurs hurled at him and other black officers. What they went through was a war. To use Sergeant Gunnell's phrase in his written statement, what happened in the vestibule of the Lower West Terrace entrance to the Capitol was a medieval battlefield where they fought hand-to-hand, inch-by-inch, to prevent attackers from breaching the Capitol. They didn't know that there had been breaches elsewhere. They fought tooth and nail as if everything they were doing there was essential to preventing a breach, and it's reflected in the documentary evidence and in their oral testimony at just how desperate that fighting was, what the level of violence inflicted to them was, the havoc, the fatigue that they endured. I can't really think of anything like that in our country's history. I'm not aware of any instance in our modern history where there has been a mass attack on law enforcement of that kind anywhere, in any locality in our country, let alone at the United States Capitol. And watching the videos, listening to their testimony, you know, it almost catapults you back to some foreign battlefield where American soldiers have had to engage in hand-to-hand combat with foreign enemies, whether it's bayonets fixed in World War I or Okinawa or some other heralded battlefield. And now, you know, I can't see the United States Capitol where I worked for four years for the House Ethics Committee in the late 90s. I can't drive up to Capitol Hill now without my sense of the Capitol, one of the most beautiful buildings in our country, a cathedral to democracy, without that memory being partially defiled by what happened there on January 6th and worried that it could happen again. I mean, there's some element of folks who believe that what happened on January 6th was kind of a training run for another potential attack. I mean, there was just an appropriation approved by Congress to fortify the Capitol as we sit here today. It remains pretty vulnerable. I saw glass that had been restored, for example, on the West Terrace that was not fortified glass. They just basically replaced what had been there before. But we shouldn't have perfect visibility into what the security plans are to protect the Capitol. That should be a highly confidential thing. But what plans have there been made to protect the Capitol if something like this materialized in short order? And this is really the great tension that we always face, which is how do you protect the people's building 
without building a 22-foot fence around it with guard posts and everything else. There's no such thing as perfect security. And if you found it, then the people who went to work there every day would be working in a fortress and there would be a literal and metaphorical divide between the people's business and the people. That's right. It really comes down to me. It comes down to intelligence gathering, using all legal authorities to maintain situational awareness in real time of threats that may be materializing to the United States government. And by leaning as far forward as the FBI and other law enforcement agencies can to monitor open source media to see what is happening out there. Sometimes when somebody tells you that they are organizing an attack on some element of the United States government or some military installation, you should believe them. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you if you substituted, you know, Islamic jihadists for Proud Boys or three percenters in the intelligence gathering that takes place, there would be a far more aggressive response, or there would have been, at least in the lead up to January 6th, than there was, because we just don't take those chances anymore. We don't wait until the threat has physically materialized to disrupt a foreign terrorist plot to the United States. That is the lesson of 9-11, is to prevent foreign terrorist attacks on the United States. And we need to bring that same ethos and same commitment to preventing attacks in the United States or the people of the United States by domestic political extremists. So let me turn from the men and women on the front lines that day to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. As you noted in Trump's first debate with President Biden, you know, he had the siren song to the Proud Boys. In December, there was a rally in D.C. that got a little bit violent that, according to some of the new books that are out, appeared to have been maybe a training run for this. I believe on December 19th, Trump actually tweeted, you know, I'll see you on January 6th. You know, there's some reporting out today about the Republican Attorneys General Association, who had paid for robocalls, you know, whether or not the intent of the Republican superstructure to storm the Capitol was what they were looking to do. That was certainly the result. But let me talk to Trump specifically. So the Justice Department, the current Justice Department said it will not engage executive privilege for former members of the Department of Justice who may be called to testify before the select committee. And Trump said he's not going to get in their way. So what does that mean exactly for those people who, one, might be called to testify? And then a second question that we can get to is, what does it tell you about what was going on at the time, both at the White House and at Justice, when you see these notes that were released the other day that said, you know, you take care of this and I'll take care of that. But the bottom line was like, overturn the election. Well, taking the second part of your question first, I mean, those notes exemplify an extraordinary, appalling effort by the White House and personally by the President of the United States to harangue day by day and maybe hour by hour the senior leadership of the Department of Justice to lend their support to an effort to overturn an election that was free and fair by any objective standard, arguably the most surveilled, transparent, free and fair election in our history. He was losing case after case around the country, so the litigation effort was failing miserably, and his options, as he sought desperately to cling to power, were starting to diminish. So he is pushing the leadership of the Department of Justice to get behind his messaging to promote the idea that this was a fraudulent election, to support the stop the steal type of messaging campaign. And you see in those notes and you see in other reporting by the news media that the senior leadership of the Department of Justice, the acting attorney general Rosen and his senior staff, you know, were trying to balance on a knife's edge 
how to pacify the president, placate him, give him an opportunity to vent while holding the line on committing the department to really do anything practical to promote these theories or take action the way the president was seeking to. It had to have been, and I've served at the highest levels of the department, it had to have been a nightmarish period for them, knowing that at any moment the president could fire them and install some political puppet who could have done serious harm to the institution of the Department of Justice and to our democracy by just being a stooge for the president, just like we've seen throughout our history in the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries where the law enforcement and intelligence apparatuses are just an extension of the political leadership. That's what the president of the United States here was trying to do. Well, and he consistently saw the attorney general, regardless of who it was, as his attorney. Yes. So it appears, because that's how he always saw his attorneys, whether it was Roy Cohen or someone else, just as an instrument or mouthpiece for whatever his particular schemes were. And, you know, there's some evidence that Bill Barr was pushing back perhaps more aggressively on some of this, and that when Bill Barr left, Trump thought he might have more of an entree with an acting attorney general who wasn't Senate confirmed to get his way. And so here we have, in the recent decision you cited by the Department of Justice, to tell these potential witnesses, these former government officials, that the department will not be supporting any theory of executive privilege, where the department has leaned farther forward in what has historically always been a balance of accommodation with Congress when Congress seeks records involving communications by or involving the president. And they're essentially saying, you know what, in this particular case, given the extraordinary nature of a threat to our democracy and Congress's coordinate constitutional authority, expressly granted by the Constitution to engage in investigations, we're going to lean farther forward and authorize the transmittal of these notes to the Congress and the fulfillment of Congress's investigative powers. And so it's highly improbable if any of these witnesses seek to litigate subpoenas that are issued to them, and I hope they're issued soon, but they will be successful. And it seems as if the former president is not going to try to intervene in this litigation for whatever reason. And eventually, we're likely to hear from them in more graphic detail about these desperate days and weeks at the Department of Justice, where the president was trying to use the Department of Justice to help foment a coup in the United States to preserve his power. We spent a lot of time last year talking to Mary Trump, the former president's niece. And she said something to me once in a conversation that has stuck with me and sticks with me to this day, which is Trump will do anything he can and anything he can think of to advance his own position so long as it does not jeopardize his personal safety, his literal physical safety. And of course, because he has men and women of the United States Secret Service sworn to protect him, I assume, for the rest of his life, he doesn't feel that fear. And then there's also the other part, you know, you talked about the placating. This is what everyone has always tried to do to this guy, which is from the moment he was in kindergarten right through this moment, he has always pushed through every barrier in such an ostentatious, loud and obnoxious and unbelievable way that people stand their mouths agape. I mean, Trump's whole life is a is a masterclass in a lack of imagination with people who tried to deal with him. And as we know, if you try and placate someone like that, there's no steam valve. It just encourages them. What we always counted on in our history when someone as dangerous as a Donald Trump materialized was that responsible coordinate branches of government would mobilize to ostracize and stigmatize them, just as Joseph McCarthy eventually was ostracized and stigmatized. We never counted on one of two pillars of our political system, in this case, the Republican Party, to stand en masse 
behind a would-be despot like Donald Trump. And with the exception of a few outliers, like a Liz Cheney or an Adam Kinzinger, for example, it's been a catastrophic failure, as we well know. And that, more than anything, has enabled Trump to continue to hold sway over the party and people who continue to self-identify as Republicans. That has enabled this catastrophe to persist. It has given them the continued oxygen that fuels his efforts to continue to delegitimize the 2020 election. And it's the most shocking thing of all. We keep waiting for that tipping point, but I don't think we're going to find it. I think we passed that point. If January 6th wasn't enough to cause the Republican Party en masse to disown Donald Trump, I don't know what is. I mean, how do you get from a speech that Kevin McCarthy made on the floor of the House, cited by our witnesses in their testimony, condemning what happened on January 6th, to the Kevin McCarthy we see today? How is such a thing possible? Because what we have seen is that there is, at least is certainly starting with their own party, there has been no sanction. And, you know, in this country, we settle our political differences, hopefully at the ballot box. And that's what we do all day, every day is ensuring that they feel that sanction at the hands of the American people next November, and that they are held to account between now and then by people like the select committee and others. May I indulge in one question about the legal profession? Sure. Did you ever expect that you'd see so many people who had attended and graduated from law school and taken the bar exam, and maybe some who were the chief law enforcement officers of their states, so completely put aside their legal ethics and responsibilities to the profession and to the rule of law for the sake of political expedience? No, it's been shocking and a disgrace and sad to see, particularly people like Rudy Giuliani, who held positions of high authority in the Department of Justice at Maine Justice. He was the Associate Attorney General, the third-ranking official in the Southern District of New York, and all these other attorneys who have lent their bar licenses in support of these insurrectionist legal theories that fell flat on their face in every court in which they were litigated. They should be held to account. They should be sanctioned by their bars when the facts warrant them. Anyone who signed pleadings knowing that the facts they were alleging were untrue should be prevented from practicing law. It's a sad day for the bar. The legal profession across the country has mobilized to denounce these people, to ridicule them, and to urge local bars, as some have, as in New York, to suspend the licenses of these individuals. Well, we can only hope that, again, there is some accountability across the board for the people who walked up those steps, to the man who incited them, to the people who attempted to either defend that behavior or expand that behavior in a court of law. David, I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll come back and see us again as we see these proceedings play out. Before we get out of here, where can we find you online? You can find me online at my Twitter handle, at David Loffman Law, and you can also see work I do and my firm does at Wigan, which is W-I-G-G-I-N.com. And as always, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. David, I want to thank you for joining me. Please send along to the officers you're representing the thanks and deep appreciation of not only us here at the Lincoln Project, but the thousands and thousands of people that listen to this podcast. And everyone, we will see you next week. Thanks again to everyone for listening. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.